Well, it's good to be back. New year. What's that saying? New year, new self or something like that? Yeah. I don't I don't really relate to that very well. I still feel the same person as I was in last year, but I'm excited to be here. Feel pretty good today. I'm not sure if it's because of playoff season and I don't have to watch the Broncos lose. Um, <laughs> well, we got a lot of Jaguar fans today. Yeah. One person? Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for the Jags. Sorry, all you Pittsburgh fans. Don't beat me up after. Well, all right. So, um, I guess uh, I should do a first, I guess, a shout out to, to my crew down in uh, Utah County. I'll give them the A inside joke. Um, they'll get it. They're laughing. They're doing it too. A. You guys want to do it too? A. There we go. Cool. So let's uh, let's pray before I jump into um, my very broad topic of the Bible today. Um, we're going to go through all sixty six books. So um, buckle your seatbelts. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. All right, but let's pray. Father, we just uh, thank you for the opportunity to come and, and worship you today, and and to deepen understanding of your Word and of who you are. I just pray that we don't leave these rooms unchanged, Lord, that um, we will be able to walk out refreshed and realigned with what your will is for us, that we'll be able to, to tackle the, the trials and, and, the, and the hardships of this week with uh, joy and perseverance as we continue to run this race, Lord. Um, we just are in so much awe of what you've already done through this body, through our lives, that you've rescued us, you've brought us out of um, the terrible things of this world and have given us a hope and a future. And uh, we just praise your name for that. And we look forward to, to seeing you again in your name. Amen. amen. All right. So I thought I'd start off by, by sharing a little bit of a story with you. Um, since we're, we're looking at the Bible, and in particular, the title of this sermon is Withstanding the Winds of the World, <clears throat> the WWW. And, when, and the story that came to mind when, when I was writing this sermon was, <clears throat> has anybody ever gone deep sea fishing before? A few of us. Now, I grew up in Moab, as some of you may know, and we don't have a lot of deep seas. We're, we're pretty deserty. But we went to the Gulf Coast once as a kid, and and uh, we were able to, to go red snapper fishing, which was pretty exciting for me. I loved to fish. And so the, the you know, concept of catching something bigger than like this was, was pretty exciting to me. And so we went out on, on this boat. I had no idea, and me and my dad and like, a couple of my cousins, we had no idea what we were really getting ourselves into. But we thought, well, we'll just catch a lot of big fish, and it'll be a great time, and so forth. But I didn't know like what deep sea fishing really, what it entailed. And so we went out in, in the middle of the ocean, what it felt like was the middle of the ocean. I mean, I was, as soon as I couldn't see land, I became very uncomfortable at this point. Um, I got real disoriented, but I didn't realize what happened was you, they go and find a school of fish, and then they just circle this one spot for hours and hours and hours. And at first, it's really cool. You're, I mean, it's not, you don't have to sit and wait like you do when you're fishing here in Utah. It's literally the moment your, your line gets to the right spot. It's just, you just catch, boom, over and over. And your arms getting tired because these are like 50, 40, 40 to 50 pound fish you're pulling in every time. But I remember after a couple hours of this, 
I started feeling real queasy, real fast. And I usually don't get motion sickness. That's something I used to pride myself in was I never really had, I could ride roller coasters. I, I thought I was just one cool dude because I never had this motion sickness. But this one time, oof, it was, I was starting to feel it. And uh, the good thing is, is I, I just like kind of laid down, took a little nap on the boat. And I woke up feeling okay. My poor dad, though, he did not feel that way. I think he probably threw up on the guy's hand um, who, was, who was helping us. It was pretty embarrassing for him. Sorry, Dad. Um, but it reminded me of, of when I was writing this and, and talking about how do I narrow this concept down of the Bible is, man, we have a lot of things in this world that, that really make us do this. And we get this seasickness type of feeling, right? Like our spiritual seasickness where we're just kind of tossed here and there by this doctrine, by this teaching. And I realized the importance that we need to look at is, is we have to have a, a spiritual foundation. We have to have something that, that keeps us grounded, that keeps us from doing these type of circles and, and being tossed in and about. And so within this sermon, I really want to hit on, one, the importance of having a foundation and what the Word has to say about that. And then also, I really want to hit on two of the, the biggest concepts around why we can, can trust that foundation. Right? A lot of us call the Bible the Word of God, but some of us may not know why we believe that. Someone told us that. Right? And we really shouldn't attack things because someone said so. We should be able to explore these things in the Bible, and God will reveal these things to us in His Word. So what I'm saying is don't take my word for it. Let the Bible speak for itself, right? This is going to be one of those first Peter sermons where you have to be able to defend the hope that is in your life. Sometimes we have to throw these out there because my, my hope and prayer is that you guys walk out today with the concept of being able to defend the hope that is found in the word of God. So we ready to go? Let's do it. So there's a couple of verses I want to share that the Bible speaks about. And this concept of having an important foundation. The first one is Ephesians 4, 13 through 14. It reads, Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. So here it says we have to, the importance of having unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, the knowledge of Jesus Christ comes from the Bible. Are you aware of that? That because if you were a Bible-believing Christian today is because somebody spoke into your life from the Bible. So we have this knowledge of the Son of God, the Messiah, God incarnation, directly from, from the Word of God. So we have this idea, and it, what this does is it gives us this foundation. Unlike when you're spiritually seasick, you're not tossed by these waves blown here and there by every wind of different teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. It stops us from being able to do that. So there's an importance of having a foundational stand on. The second one is directly from Jesus Christ himself. He says in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, he says, Therefore... Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall, 
because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Guys, nothing breaks my heart more when I'm talking to somebody, counseling somebody, and they are being tossed around because of the storms because they have no foundation. I can speak just directly biblical passages to them all day, and they're just blown away. Like, I can't believe God says that about me. Well, yeah, it's, it's in here. I'm not saying anything different. Right? We have to be able to know and understand what these words are. And then we not only that, but we have to be able to live them out. I can, I can sit and memorize this entire book, well, eventually in my life probably, and not still know Jesus. I can know every word. I can speak the Greek. I can speak the Hebrew. I can know all the history. But until God's love and grace and faith transforms me, it means, you know, what is it? I can have theological debates till I'm blue in the face about some concepts of postmodernism, premillennialism, post-trib, pre-trib, blah, blah, blah. But if I don't know Jesus, it's all for nothing. Right? And that's what he's saying. He says, you know, it's not just enough to know and hear what I have to say, but are you, are you living? Are you putting into practice? Are you actually building the house? Or you just know the concept of I should build the house on the rock, but you know what? I'm just going to put it on the sand, even though you said I should put it on the rock. So the words of God are not only are, are the only foundation on which we are to build our foundation for truth. And I love it because Christianity is the only thing that teaches that truth is not only a concept, but it's in an identity. It's in a personage. I still get chills when I read about Pilate. He says, he talks to Jesus, what is truth? Not knowing that truth is looking him right in the face. So it's our steady foundation to prevent spiritual seasickness is what the Bible is. You are no longer tossed by every wave of teaching because you can take every t- everything taught and directly filter it through the word of God. And if it's something that's not, it contradicts the word of God, if it's different than the word of God, you know it's not from God because he doesn't contradict himself. It is steady and it is unchangeable. That's the beauty of it. Now, you hear a word a lot called biblical canon. It's a really religiosity type of a word that, that people, you know, don't really like to talk about too much sometimes and, and people don't fully understand and and I have some things coming down the road that will be tackling this, this concept of canon and deeper, so keep your eyes out for that. But I want to just hit on that briefly because canon is Greek for measuring stick, is what it actually means. It means a, a measuring stick of something that you can, you can measure to find truth. And the reason that the early church saw this was because there was a lot of different teachings. There was exactly what was happening there's all these different waves of winds of teaching, waves of things happening. Heresy is not new to our age, everybody. It's been there since the beginning. You can read about Paul talking about it. Paul dealt with the same issues that we deal with today, as far as, as false teaching goes. And so they started to realize what was eyewitness accounts, what was original, and we need to keep these things together. We need some kind of a canon, a measuring stick to prove, oh, this is different than what we have original. We need, they needed some kind of a line. And so that's how we get 
our Holy Bible. And then again, we're going to have more on this coming down the road. So be open to, to more on the canon. But I wanted to at least hit on that because we have to have that tool. The, whole, the Bible is really a tool for us to be able to test truth. And that's why it's so important to understand. Some examples of that and things I'll share. Uh, I want to share a couple examples, I guess, of how we can use the Bible as a tool before I jump into some more of the things about it. So let's look at the Old Testament. For example, Deuteronomy 18, 21 through 22 says, and this is how you test if something is actually from God or not. This is what the Israelites did and something we can still do today. It says, you may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has, been not, has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be alarmed. So here we have God saying, you know, if, if this guy says that this thing's going to happen and it doesn't happen, then he's not, that he didn't really hear from me. Right? Pretty simple test. Right? But I love what he actually says before. He's like, he says, don't go after him. Just says, don't worry about it. Do the Luke, the Luke Skywalker. Right? Don't be alarmed. Don't let it afraid. Don't let it affect you because it's not from me. So there we have one tool. Another, let's look at some New Testament examples. 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21 says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its orig- origin in the human will. But prophets, through human, though human, spoke from God as, if, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So a message from God, what this is saying is, a message from God doesn't contradict what he has already revealed. He has a continued, if you, you think of God as omnitemporal, what that means is, is he, he can put his left foot at the beginning of everything that exists and his right foot at the end of everything and look down, right? That's a big God, right? And he can see everything that's happened from beginning to end. He knows that decision that you make, this is how it's going to go, kid, right? So it doesn't affect the free will, but he can see those, those decisions, and, but he also doesn't contradict everything that his will is. An example of that, he's never going to say, you know, oh, that, that cross that, that my son came and died on, that doesn't actually mean anything anymore. Right? That would be a contradiction. And something that God would never say. One thing that you need to keep your eyes on, if somebody demeans the character of Christ, you'll look at that. Is Christ less than who he really is in the Bible? That's a teaching that goes around across the board. Is it really from God? No, it's not. Let's look at Galatians 1.8. This is a good one too. <clears throat> but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. And that curse is called anathema. It's a, it's a separation. It's like you think about Jesus casting and separating the different categories of sheep and goats, and he uses a lot of analogies for this. It's that type of thing. It's like, it's the curse of, you're not part of me. You're not part of my vine. Anathema. And so we see if there's a message that's different from the good news that we bring, even if an angel from heaven comes to you and said, this is the message, and it's still different than the, what, what Christ came to do, it's not from him. Talk about an enemy who's going to come after you in every direction. You've got angels that are going to 
they're going to preach false gospels. That's why it's so important to have a tool. Because even, even angels will contradict the word of God. So the one thing is, is if it's different, if it contradicts, if it's, a, if it's a different message, a different ending point, if it's something that doesn't come true, we know it's not from God, and that's because the Bible tells me so. You guys want a little jingle? You guys all, all sing in your heads. I know you did. God is clear that it's not enough just to know what, your, what the word of God is, but you also have to obey it. Now, let me be clear about this. We are saved by grace through faith in the one who came and died on the cross. But without any kind of obedience to that, what's, what's your life look like? Right? Ira talked a lot about this last week with stewardship. Really impacted me. That was an awesome message. I left that, I left that day just, woof. Right? But I think one analogy that I, I saw, and a lot, some of you may have seen this, and I, I thought it's perfect, was imagine, you know, I just became a father about seven months ago, but imagine Luke a little older, and um, I tell him to, to clean his room, and he says, okay, Dad. Uh, and then I come back, and his room is still not clean. And I go, Luke, why didn't you clean your room? He says, well, Dad, I, I had some friends over. You know, we, we sat in a circle. We prayed, and we studied what it meant to clean my room. You know, um, we looked at the Greek why did it click? Well, you know, we looked at the different analogies around how we could clean the room. You know, so I know how to clean my room, but I, you know, I just never got around to actually doing it. And I thought, man, that's perfect, right? Because we do that. We love to get around. We love to talk about these great things. And, and being, a, a, you know, what I was saying with the master's program, we love doing that stuff. I mean, man, theologians, we love talking about that stuff. But we're the first ones that read that and go... Uh, yeah, about that. And that's, the, you know, one of my biggest fears is I'm accountable for that, right? So it's not only just knowing, but actually living out that. And that's when you hear Ira talk a lot about in base camp and, and summit is getting out of the boat, right? That's what we mean by that is, is not only knowing the concepts and understanding, but actually living that out. So... You know, you could sit in theory and memorize, again, every scripture, but until you actually know and have their relationship with Christ, that's when the true transformation happens. Because that's when your desires change. That's when you have the heart that wants and desires to want to do that. Man, I woke up this morning so excited that I get to actually, I get to serve God today. Man, like, is there anything better in the world than just waking up and being like, wow, the creator of, of everything that's ever existed knows my name and he has a will for me and he has laid out all of these things for me to do today and all I have to do is go. Wow, life is good. So, now that we have some kind of a understanding of the importance, you guys understand why now this is important stuff? Okay, good. How can we trust it? This would be a question all of us have asked in our lives is how can we trust it? One reason I even had this concept of even starting this, what we call the speculation podcast, which is what we're, we're working on, things that are going on is, and, and you'll hear about it more going forward, is because I wanted to be able to have an instrument or a tool or a resource that people could tap into to ask questions. 
Because I love asking questions. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a result of being mentored by Eric Van Rie for three years. Right? I, I just, I, you just, you just a sponge. You absorb everything. So I started asking questions. And these are things that we need to ask. So a little bit about the Bible. I'm going to look at the historical reliability. And I'm going to look at the eyewitness reliability. And there's, there's a lot of different avenues I could have gone, but you guys have football to watch, and so I'll, I'll be, uh, you know, aware of that. But the Bible is the most famous literary creation ever produced. To compare it with some other great works, the Iliad has been translated into 40 different languages. Shakespeare's work has been translated into 60 different languages. The Bible has been translated into over 2,000 languages. And counting. That's ten times greater than any other literary work known to man. It's the world's bestseller. Man, if you were a writer or a copywriter, I'm, I'm not a literary guy, but if you were into that kind of a, an industry, there are over 40 million copies sold every year. People can't get enough of it. So what is the Bible? For anybody who's not familiar with it, I'll go over a few points. So, again, it's 66 different books written over a period of 1,600 years by an estimated 40 different authors. And it's one continuous story. Man, I can't even keep my email straight. Let alone God, he's he's working over 1,600 years with over 40 different writers and 66 periods of history. We have authors who are kings, fishermen, tent makers, poor men like Amos, who was a sycamore tree farmer, like one of the worst things you could have ever done. It's written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Hebrew, Aramaic being our Old Testament, and Greek being our New Testament. It's written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It is a living, breathing document. So, how do we entrust the integrity of a document to us, which is over 4,000 years old? Right? Most of us would look at a document that old if it was not something like this and kind of question, how could this be reliable? You read some of the things in it, and it's like, well, he came back from the dead? He healed lepers? What's a leopard? It makes some outrageous claims, doesn't it? But historically, we can test it. And then if you're sitting in a court of law, we always, we'd always trust the eyewitness accounts. We're going to look at that as well. Now, this has a special place in my heart because as an undergrad student, I was a history major. Now, at the time, I didn't have any interest or even care about being in this type of position where I'm telling people about Jesus at a church. But I had a huge passion for what we call the Hellenistic period which is a period from Alexander the Great through Augustus, which happens about 300 B.C., about 9 A.D. Classic God, right? Puts me in this particular place to learn Greek. He taught me Latin. And, you know, not knowing that probably, you know, it was about six years later I would be here talking to you about this stuff. Wild. So the historical side has a real heart because I was able to view that through my, my undergraduate education. And the results are just unreal. I'm telling you, it's unreal that people can look at the Bible and even question its authenticity and its originality. Unreal. So let's look at the, the first thing I want to look at is the process of transmission versus translation. 
So a lot of people will claim that, and this is a perfectly legitimate claim for any you know, ancient text, is there was translation errors, right? Anything that old had to have changed to some degree from translation. But what they don't understand is that there was a concept in the ancient world called transmission, right? We didn't have, or they didn't have, I, I say we, I wasn't there. They didn't have, like, they didn't have presses. They didn't have mass amounts of abilities to, to transmit a lot of information. So what they did is they, art, they had an art called scribing, when they would be meticulous, if they had a, a, a word, let's say a sentence that was 10 words long, they would count each word throughout the entire text. And then once they finished the text, they would recount the papyrus scroll and make sure every word was there. If it wasn't, they would scratch it and throw it out. This was actually, this wasn't the Christians that started this. This was actually the Alexandrians in Egypt. They had, you ever heard of the Library of Alexandria? They had this harbor where Alexandria was kind of the, the hub of the Mediterranean during that time. And every time a boat came in, they were asked, did you have any kind of works of, of literary art? And they'd say, yeah. And then they, what they would do is they'd take it to these scribes. These scribes, whose whole job was to transmit all of these items and keep it in this library. Sadly, the library burned down. So we lost all of these great works. But this was how we started to understand this concept of scribing. And transmission was... What they did is they took these, these documents, these letters from Paul, these gospels, and they transmitted them hundreds and thousands of times. The results of that are astounding. It is from these transmissions that we get our modern Bibles, actually. So how do we know someone didn't tamper with or omit things out of these transmissions? And so to do that, I really want to look at... Um, the New Testament in particular. Um, the podcast we just launched will have the, has the Old Testament, so if you're curious about that, you can read the, go through that. But the New Testament is what I want to focus on right now because the, the, the evidence is overwhelming. So let's look at a few of these. So everyone's probably read the Iliad. If you went to middle school, high school, you read the Iliad. You haven't lived until you read it in Greek, I'm just saying. But it was written around 900 B.C., the earliest copies that we have in possession was around dates about 400 BC. So at a 500 year span between the two, we have 643 copies, which is awesome. That's why we study it. We have a lot of ancient copies for it, but 643 copies. Plato, the great philosopher, written, wrote around 427 to 347 BC. Um, earliest copy we have is 900 AD. Pretty sure Ira was still around during that one. Just kidding, buddy. Uh... So that's about 1,200 years span. There are seven copies of, of Plato. Aristotle, another great philosopher of ancient Greece, 384 to 322 BC. We have 1100 AD as the earliest time for him. There's, that's a 1,400 year span between him and our earliest copy. We have 40. Caesar, in his, his uh, commentary on his Gallic Wars, again, if you haven't lived in your, until you read it in Latin, a 100 to 44 BC was when it was written. 900 AD is the closest one we have to date. Uh, it's a thousand years between him and, and, and today, or in, between him and the earliest copy. And we have 10 copies of Caesar. Herodotus, the first historian, someone who's very close to my heart, he wrote a, he wrote a book called Historia, which is the, the concept of history of the, of, the, of the Mediterranean, where he goes to Persia, Greece, Egypt, and writes histories. 44 to 425 BC, 
we have the earliest copies of in 100 AD. So 600 years span, we have 75 copies. Livy, the great history of Rome, the only reason we have a concept of, of history of the Roman world is because of Livy, maybe some Tacitus, I didn't put him in. But 59 BC to 17 AD was his writing. 300 AD is the earliest copies. We have a time span of about 400 years, and we have 27 copies. I'll tell you now, the history community has no problem whatsoever taking these as historical fact. I read Thucydides, Herodotus, Livy, Tacitus, a ton. That was my thing. And no one was ever like, well, we don't think the Romans actually lived. <laughs> we don't think that the Athens was actually a powerful city in 400 BC. No one ever said that. No one ever thought, well, we don't know if Julius Caesar was a real person. We don't know if Alexander the Great was a real person. You don't hear that, right? Now let's look at the New Testament, and, you'll, and it'll blow your mind. So New Testament, written 500 to 100 AD, somewhere in that time frame. And in the New Testament, we have a number of different things. We have fragments, which are, you know, we don't have the entire New Testament. We have fragments of the New Testament that date from 50 to 150 AD. So we have, like, books of John, you know, parts of the book of John, parts of, you know, some of the letters of Paul dating pretty close to within, you know, 30 to 40 years of when it was originally written. But then we have entire books of, of the New Testament dating from 150 AD to 200 AD. I mean, that's, that's nothing. Like, we can look back and say, yeah, 100, you know, 100 years ago, we know what was happening in the United States. That's why I never studied American history. It, t- it felt too much like journalism to me. I liked a little mystery in my history. Oh, that right, that's pretty good. And then we have, an, we have the entire New Testament with the entire New Testament bound books from starting at 300 AD. Because it wasn't until 300 AD we started getting canon. But people always knew what was, what was real and what wasn't. We try to, go, we try to look 2,000 years later and go, you had no idea, Mr. First century AD Christian. It's crazy. So that's 29 years to 100 years that we see compared to all these other texts, which are ranged from 1,400 years to the closest is 400 years, and yet we can get down to 29 years of reliability. There's 5,800 Greek manuscripts. That's 5,800 Greek manuscript of copies that we can look at were transmitted. That's a lot of Greek. And, you can, and the great thing with technology nowadays, you can view these copies. They've uploaded, scanned them. There's websites you can actually, if you, if you learn the Koine Greek, you can go through and actually read it. There's software called Logos. I love it. I don't even have to learn Greek. I don't know why I waste so much time. I just have to hover over a word, and it shows me, like, the Greek word, the stem of the word, how many times it's used, different ways it's used. We have 10,000 Latin manuscripts, which came from the Latin Vulgate, which was directly translated from our Greek they had the Greek copies right there. And we still use the Greek copies today. We don't use the Latin manuscripts to create our Bible. We use the Greek ones. We have Syriac and Coptic. Coptic is what the Egyptians wrote, and we have 9,800 Syriac and Coptic manuscripts. And then another huge part of the evidence is we have 36,000 early church fathers, the patristic quotations. So these are the first century. These are the guys who I knew John. 
I knew these disciples. This is the first generation out. We can take the entire New Testament and write it just by the things they, they read and they wrote. There's only 11 verses in the Bible that aren't there just by what they wrote. The, the evidence is overwhelming. Just in the copies itself. If there was something that was omitted, if there was something that was different, it would stick out like a Utah fan at a BYU football game. Like, imagine a red dot in a sea of blue. That's what it would look like. And we see it. We can look at it. We, have, we can take these, these Greek manuscripts from Rome. We can take these Greek man, or Syrian Coptic messages from Egypt and Syria, and we can put them together and say, whoa, they say the same thing. They all say the same thing about Jesus. So why did these, where did these authors get their information? Right? So we have this understanding, okay, historically, sure, it backs it up, fine, right? But how do we know that what they know actually happened? Well, here we go through the eyewitness accounts. It's an important part. So where do these authors get their information for their eyewitness accounts? The four Gospels were written, by four, for different, were written by different authors in different parts of the world. Not all were actually in Judea at the time of the writing. We think that Matthew was probably in Judea. We think Mark was actually probably writing in Rome. Luke was probably writing in Antioch. And John was probably writing in Ephesus. John was writing in Ephesus. Luke, for example, was a Greek writing outside of Judea. So how did he get his information? He wasn't even a Jew. I love, I love Luke. I named my son Luke because he was like, he's the better historian than anybody I've ever read in my life. He puts the Greeks and Romans to absolute shame. You read the book of Acts, it's straight historical narrative. Man, I like Star Wars. <laughs> we can see this eyewitness account because of the author's insights into the land and culture. If you've never been to a place, it's extremely hard to give detailed information about that place, right? I've never been to Paris, and I wouldn't try to, to give you directions if you asked me, where is this bakery in Paris? I wouldn't, I, you know, I don't know. But what we see in the eyewitness accounts of the four Gospels is an extremely detailed insight into a world. And I found this study that absolutely was amazing to me. So in 2003, there was a study conducted by academics, researchers, scholars, archaeologists, not really going into a thing, and this is, this is how we're going to go, but they wanted to look at the names of people in the first century A.D., they looked at all these different places across the world, and especially with the Jewish population, as there was people in Rome, Greece, Egypt. So they wanted to see what were the names of these people. And they thought, well, we could find some beneficial information around what people named their kids in the first century AD. Not knowing that this study would actually really back up the eyewitness accounts of the Gospels. But we'll use it. Thank you, Jesus. So they looked at the, the study of male Jewish names in Judea first, during the first century AD. So I, I pulled out the first seven. So the most popular Jewish names in Judea were in this order. Simon, Joseph, Lazarus, Judas, John, Jesus, and Ananias. Some of those names hopefully sound very familiar to you. So we see that, that, that the names consist about 40% of the name usage in, we'll say, Palestine, Judea, Israel during that time. And then if you look at the name usage within the New Testament, 
it adds up. It's 41% of the names used. So it correlates really well with outside of, of the biblical text and inside the biblical text correlates with the name usage. So we can look at that and go, okay, well, the names that are being used would have been the names highly used in Judea at that time. Okay? So then they also looked at Greco-Roman Egypt because there's a lot of Jewish settlements in Egypt. And they looked at the names there. And let's pull all seven out. Eleazar, Sabbatius, Joseph, Dositheus, Pappas, Ptolemaeus, and Samuel. These names are a little different. I don't think anybody probably recognized most of those. Maybe Eleazar or the priest. That's about the only one I can remember. Samuel. But what we saw, this is, this is significant. I'm telling you this. Because the, the writers of the gospel were talking about Palestinian people. Not Egyptian people. Someone who wasn't there, someone who was in Rome trying to write this, wouldn't have any idea of that, that difference. Would anybody be able to tell me the, name, the most popular name in America in 1970? I can't. I mean, who can't, right? Michael, maybe? Yeah, I don't know. No one can really know, right? Like, I don't, this is a study. And these guys, they, they did it. They knew it. They saw it. They weren't writing about Greco-Roman Jews in Egypt. They were writing about Palestinian Jews in Palestine. So some of these names sound familiar. And the majority of these names we read about in the New Testament Gospels or even in the book of Acts. So imagine, and this is where we, we go to the second level of this study. Imagine a first century Jewish mother calling. She's got to get her kid inside for dinner and she yells out Simon. There's probably going to be about a hundred Simons that come running because there's no difference, right? If I, go, if I was to reach out and say Simon, there'd be a lot of Simons show up. However, the Bible correctly identifies these, these names. So just in the Bible, we, there's a few examples. We have Simon, Cephas, we have Simon the leper. We have Simon of Cyrene. So it correlates with this study. There had to be some identifiers. We look at Matthew 10. We look at the 12 disciples. Simon, Peter, first on the list. Andrew. Oh, yeah. He, remember him? He's the brother of Peter. Not the other Andrew, but the brother of Peter. James. Oh, yeah. He's the son of Zebedee. James is number 11 on the list. John, oh yeah, that's James's brother, not, not the other John. We're talking James' brother John, because he's number fifth on the list. Philip, yeah, he was Philip, number 61. He didn't need an identifier. Everyone knew who Philip was. <laughs> Bartholomew, he was number 50. No one, no one needed to know more information on Bartholomew. There was like, oh yeah, the one that followed Jesus. Yeah, got it. Thomas, he didn't even make the top 100. So no one, no one needed to know more identification on Thomas. Maybe the doubting part. Sorry, Thomas. Matthew, the, oh yeah, he was the tax collector. Remember him? He's number nine on the list. Oh, you remember the tax collector guy? Yeah, that's Matthew. James, oh, he was the son of Alphaeus. Yeah, we had to do that because James again, he's the, he's the number 11. It's not James, the son of Zebedee. It's James, the son of Alphaeus. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. That's why, that's why Jesus had to call him up all these nicknames for these guys. Thaddeus, yeah, he didn't have an identifier. I don't think anybody nowadays would have an identifier for Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot, again, number one on the list. Okay, he was the Zealot one. He was the Canaanite. Remember him? Yeah, yeah. 
And then Judas Iscariot, Judas was number four. Of course, he also gets associated with the one that betrayed Jesus. So here we see this correlation of the first century names of the eyewitness accounts with the Bible backing it up saying, yeah, like we had to identify these people. You don't get that kind of information from sixth, seventh hands down. That is first person information that gets carried through. So we're not getting information that has been filtered through a number of different ways. It's purely filtered and reliable eyewitness testimony. You guys feel a little more confident? You can trust biblical text. So, I mean, I could talk for hours about the Bible, why I rely on it, the scientific side, whatever it is, I could go all day. But I want to make sure I'm planting that foundation that you can trust what God has said. You can trust what was divinely inspired. In the Bible, we see God directly speaking to man, and then we see him breathing through man. In First Timothy, it talks about Scripture being breathed out through God. So we see all these different forms, literary forms. We see poems. We see letters. We see historical narratives. All of it was breathed on by God. And that's a fact. Erwin Lutzer wrote, Religion, if it's worth believing, must be based on facts. Yes, there is room for faith, of course. But unless it is faith in facts, faith is not only useless, but it's also destructive. That's true. If your faith is built on fabrication, it leads to complete destruction. There's no rock. You're building a house on a sand. You only learn that by questioning and finding answers. So let me end with this. Does your current belief about the world, the worldview, whatever it is, does it line up in fact and is it reliable or are you relying just on blind faith on what someone has told you is true? Don't take my word that the Bible is true. You can look at the facts yourself. All this is accessible and has been peer-reviewed. Go to my history days. The Bible and all of its authority and literary styles tell the story of a God and his nature. It's a continuous story from Genesis to Revelation about one being that is going to come. In Genesis, we hear about the salvation story. He says, I know you've sinned, but I'm going to send somebody who's going to stomp on the serpent's head at the same time he's going to get bit in the hill. The same passage where sins are the world is the same verse where Jesus says, I got you. And in the New Testament, we read about this fruition of when the prophets and Abraham and all these guys were wanting to see this day would come when the Messiah would be here. And Jesus would walk around and he goes, you guys don't understand. The kingdom of God is here. It's here. I'm here. It's here. And we get to live in a time after Christ had died and risen again. You've got to think about how big God is that he stuck us here. Before the foundations of the world, he said, you know what? Caleb, you're here, man. Man, I just want to live it out. I'm sick of talking about it. I want to go. Let's go. 
kingdom of God is here. And he's revealed itself through his word. A word that is living and active, bigger than any double-edged sword. It cuts deep. It shows sin, it hurts, but it brings out a grace and faith that is overwhelming. Hebrews 1.3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. It is by his word that we can even stand here today. We are a body that's been through a lot the last few years. But I've seen it in Utah County that God is doing a new thing. I've seen it here that he is bringing new life. And he is sustaining us by his word. So as I close, I just pray. If you do not know this Jesus, if you do not know this Christ who brings newness, who seeks a relationship, that he's not about a bunch of rules and, and laws and, and you have to live your life and maybe you think he's mad at you for something you've done. He wants to redeem all of that. He wants a relationship with you. Like Iris said, because he knows that he's the only thing that's going to give you hope. He's the only thing that's going to give you a future. We just did a benefit concert yesterday for a, a young man who killed himself last year. And his friends wanted to put a concert on at the church. And I didn't know him, but during the concert, I was sitting there and I was just, I was dying inside because I thought, man, if this kid would have known if he would have just known how much God loved him. If someone would have just said something to him. He may not have wanted to read this book, but we could have said something. You could, have, you could speak to him through this. Don't be like that person where you just have that. I don't know what it is because I've had it too. It's just a, a heart that does not want to turn to God. But open your heart to him. Open your arms to him. Open that relationship to him. Let's pray. Father, we are just in awe again of what you've done. Oh, that you would come down and in the form of Christ and would die on the cross for us. That even as we were sinners, you came to die. Lord, and it is through that that we can live. That we can live a life that is no longer our own, but is completely yours. We thank you for new life. We thank you for the hope that you bring and the faith that you give as you are the pioneer of our faith. Lord, I allow this message to sink in. To renew our minds, transform our hearts, Lord. Thank you for rescuing us. For pulling us out. Give us the strength to continue to drive. Give us the strength to continue to persevere. 
Give us the strength to continue to keep our eyes fixed on you. That there is nothing bigger than you. No trial, no situation, nothing is too big. We thank you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the name above all names, who has a complete authority, I pray. Amen.